his view of that was that he was taking back that edge that the casinos always have over you. So yeah, it was kind of unrigging a rigged system, I think, in his in his estimation. And so he's like, what's most similar to this? Where can I take these skills of, you know, finding an edge, finding this competitive, this way to outsmart a system, where can I apply that? And his answer was finance, which I think is very um, tidy. I think a lot of people object to that, but I do think it's um, right. And he proved it. My guest today is Mary Childs. Mary is a co-host and correspondent for NPR's Planet Money podcast. Before joining NPR in 2019, she was a senior reporter at Barron's Magazine, where she covered the alternatives industry, the bond market, and capitalism. Her latest book is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. Bond King is the story of Bill Gross, a whiz kid who founded PIMCO, which is one of the most powerful, secretive, and cutthroat investment firms in the financial industry. Gross went about reshaping our financial system in the aftermath of the Great Recession to his own advantage and gave legions of admirers and enemies along the way. I recently sat down with Mary and we talked about how Bill Gross's ambition would also turn out to be his undoing. Mary, thanks so much for coming on the show. I'm looking f- I was looking forward to it when we spoke, uh, I think it was about a week or so ago. Mm-hmm. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, folks, the name of the book is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All. So, Mary, first off, how do you get into bonds? Isn't bonds, you know, bonds are always perceived as boring and and really stayed and, ugh. So how did you find, how did you fall into that? I think part of it was just, you know, I interned at Bloomberg News and Bloomberg is institutionally, you know, just its DNA is kind of bond E, uh, the bond market, you know, Michael Bloomberg himself kind of came up in that in that world. And I think that is just woven into the, the company. And I didn't consciously perceive that as a motivation at the time. But looking back now, I'm like, of course, that's that's kind of what happened. Um, but there is this sense, you know, that some of the the reporters on that team on the bond coverage team were just like ferociously smart and i was like i want to be like that i want to be ferociously smart like that and there's so much to do in the bond world that it did feel to me like there was more Mm. to muck around with and randomly when i started at bloomberg there was an opening to cover the credit default swap market um and this was after the crisis after the crisis yeah so it's like no one wanted to do that job because it was like eh, like the fireworks already happened and i was like okay let me have it like i'll do it and you know again it's the kind of market where people are like this is so boring it's just like refreshing models and excel spreadsheets and of course some of that is true and so much of that is is just not at all applicable so it was really fun all right super so now also you're the the host of um planet money npr's planet money and that's like what is that one of the top five or ten podcasts out there Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's it's really fun. It's a fun team and it's so different from the kind of storytelling I was doing before. But it is this kind of attempt to unpack the economy and the systems that make our world run in a really accessible and curiosity driven way. Nice. I listened to some of those podcasts, especially the one on um, carried interest. Really good stuff. Thank you. Really appreciate that. It. OK. So you wrote this book, The Bond King. Uh, by the way, is this the first biography of Bill Gross? There's another book um, sort of inauspiciously also titled mm-hmm. The Bond King um, from 2003, I think. And that one was much more, you know, in my view, the the kind of 
enormous influence that PIMCO would accrue really hadn't come to fruition in at least quite the same way. And so that's the only other one that I'm aware of. There are, you know, pieces here and there, and he had a sort of his own his own book that had biographical elements to it. But yeah, this is substantially, you know, twinned with its with its cousin, the other Bond King. Um, this is kind of the first. Okay. So I, because I was in finance and managed money and all, I've heard of Bill Gross. I've heard of PIMCO. Never really fully understood how a blackjack player, I think the guy was in his, I don't know, the 1960s or so, was counting cards, blackjack player. He takes a boring section of the market, which is bonds, turns it into something fascinating, builds PIMCO into a multi, I don't know, trillion dollar, I don't know how many trillions, right. some assets, yeah. As the U.S. government confers with him, the Fed Reserve talks to him on what they're yep. selling in bonds, and then he has a dramatic fall. But before we get into dramatic fall, why is it so important to know who Bill Gross was? Why, why is he, why did you write a book about this guy? <laughs> I think the most um, kind of salient thing to me is, you know, he's really fascinating. And as finance figures go, he's incredibly reflective. So insofar as you want a protagonist or a, a character to be able to kind of shepherd you through all of the machinations of these incredibly complicated structures and things that like ostensibly could be boring, as we've said, you want someone who, you know, you really want that person to be engaging and compelling and not just like a stick in the mud or a jerk or, you know, something without nuance. So to me, the fact that Bill is this reflective person and does strive to kind of understand his place in the world and talks openly about that, all of that made him really a rich um, kind of character from a narrative perspective. But kind of more to the point, I think the bond market and, you know, finance itself both are, are tend to be moded with jargon, right? You know, and, and to some extent, this is just a byproduct of people doing it for their jobs. And like, you get tired of saying commercial mortgage-backed securities all the time, and you're just going to make an abbreviation. Um, but at the same time, it also serves to, to kind of ostracize people, to alienate people who might want to understand and who I would argue need to understand in order to be kind of active participants in our society. And it enables those people that that do understand the jargon and, and kind of keep that moat um, that they can charge higher fees to those people that are not on their side of the island. And to me, that's um, really frustrating and annoying and a little bit of a scam. So <laughs> it's like you should have access to this information. You should be welcomed into this information, into understanding better the, the systems that, that dictate so much about our economy and our lives. So that's the kind of big pitch. Um, I can I feel like I can get it a little bit um, soapboxy. So forgive me, but <laughs> but it's also the mission of Planet Money too, where it's like this stuff is perfectly understandable. You just need a minute, and you just need an access point. Right. And for me, Bill Gross's narrative really was that. Okay, so let's start not at the beginning, beginning, but somewhere mm -hmm. where it really gets interesting. So here's a guy fresh out of college, right? Yeah. He's he I don't know. He takes what a couple hundred dollars or so was his net worth. He starts counting cards. Uh, I think it was Vegas. I was thinking like one of the mm -hmm. bars there, casino bar, casinos rather. He goes to the casino and he and he builds up. You know, he starts making money. Yeah. And then he starts thinking, what? He starts thinking, how can I replicate this? How can I take what I've learned here, which is to feel risk, to calculate when the odds are in your favor, and to kind of know with some reliability when the odds are in or not in your favor. And he did that through counting cards, right? And that was kind of his view of that was that he was taking back that edge that the casinos always have over you. So yeah, it was kind of unrigging a rigged system, I think, in his in his estimation. And so he's like, what's most similar to this? Where can I take these skills of, you know, 
finding an edge, finding this competitive, this way to outsmart a system, where can I apply that? And his answer was finance, which I think is very um, tidy. I think a lot of people object to that, but I do think it's um, you know, right. Uh, and he proved it. Later on, one of his, uh, one of his mentor, one of his mentors, one of his idols at Thorpe was also a card counter, you know, dealing with that. Yeah. And, you know, Warren Buffett was also a horse player, handicapper. So when you figure out the numbers, numbers are numbers, and you figure out where right. you have the odds. And, you know, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner, said, investing is nothing more than trying to find the two-to-one favorite that should, that's going off at ten-to-one. Mismatch odds. That's what you're really trying to find. And uh, no one did it better than, than Bill Gross. So he starts making money. He says, okay, I'm going to take this, this magic, if you will, and start to apply mm-hmm. it to finance because they don't throw you out of the casino. They, there's no limit. There's no upside. And your right. advantage sticks. In fact, your advantage becomes a competitive advantage over over other uh, of, of the investment houses. So what does Bill Gross do at this point? So he starts at, uh, you know, he goes to business school. And after he gets out of business school, he goes to, um, uh, with somebody, he goes to uh, Pack Mutual, a life insurance company, which again, like you're saying, it was this kind of like, buttoned up formal place, very corporate, very staid. And he goes in as he's a credit analyst and his part of his job is literally clipping coupons off the bottom of bond certificates to mail in to get an interest payment. Right, well, folks, hang on a second, Mary. Back in the day, yeah. for those of you who remember, you actually had bonds and you literally were clipping the, that's right, clipping the coupon. You actually clipped the coupon. And I remember back in the day when I first started on Wall Street, there was just really at the end, there were couriers carrying satchels of like zillions of dollars worth of Incredible. these bearer bonds yeah, through the streets. And it oh was like, gosh. and someone told me, you see that guy? He's kind of like $3 million. What are you crazy? Oh he goes, nope. And just follow him and watch him. And that's what they did. It was just amazing before it. electronic uh, um, movement of money. It's so radical to think about now that that this was just a tangible, literally hands-on business. Yeah. You know, I think of it as arts and crafts, which is like, yeah. that's just so far and away, like so different from what it is today. But but yeah, and, and the thing that kind of turned this upside down was at the time, you know, there was this this guy in Southern California, Howard Rakoff, who was going around kind of trying to recruit people to trade bonds with him. Inflation was really high, so there was a very strong argument to get rid of, you know, old bonds whose value was eroding and buy new bonds or, you know, trade around into a company that you liked better, who was better positioned to capitalize on whatever. Right. So so bonds, and, just, to, just to clarify for mm-hmm. our, our audience, is when the, when the interest rates go up and you have a bond that pays a 3% coupon. And interest rates are starting to go up. The value of this bond, who wants a 3% bond when I can make 5% over there? So the value exactly. of this bond shrinks. You still get the 3%, but the 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 bond, if you if you hold it till maturity, you get your money back. But during the time between now and maturity, a lot of stuff can go on, right? And that's what they start, that's what this guy starts to say, wait, wait a second, we could trade that. That's exactly right. And I love the way you put it, the like, oh, if there's a 3% bond, why do I want that when there's a 5% one available? It's like the ultimate real FOMO. And that does have have very tangible and real consequences in the bond market. So so Bill Gross, um, you know, his boss meets with this guy, Howard Rakoff. And the boss is kind of like, okay, man, whatever. But why don't you come meet with some of my like young whippersnappers? You might get along. They meet and, you know, this is kind of the beginning of, in my mind and in my telling, my, the beginning of the active bond market when Bill Gross and Howard Rakoff meet. They start this lifelong friendship, but also a very lucrative business relationship where they trade with each other. And 
what ends up happening is Bill pitches to his boss, like, hey, can I just have like a little bit of money to play with and see what happens? And he's off to, you know, basically start PIMCO from this little shell corporation within the, the larger life insurance company with just a little bit of, you know, spare change, basically. And what does PIMCO stand for? What is that an acronym for? Pacific Investment Management Company. Yeah, pretty boring. I'm always like, should I capitalize the O? Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't be, right? <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's nothing fancy, folks. It's pretty boring stuff. And Bill Gross sees an opportunity where no one else saw an opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about how well the thing was working before, you know, this is an insurance company, so they know with some degree of certainty when they're going to have to make payouts to their claimants, right? And bonds provide the opportunity to just know when your money's coming in. So you can match those up so nicely if you're this company. And so the idea of disrupting that beautiful balance of your money coming in at this schedule and your money going out at that schedule, it just introduces volatility and risk and potential for loss when you kind of didn't really have it before. So there was this institutional like, oh, I don't know about that. But, you know, if you're putting up numbers like Bill and his team would, it's hard to argue. Okay. So Bill starts this company within a company, if you will, and they give him pretty free rent. How old is he at the time? He's in his 20s, I think. Right? Oh, he's in his 20s. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He's a young guy. And, um, He's one of the few people um, that, you know, money managers that I, I think he served in Vietnam, right? He was mm-hmm. a veteran. Yeah, the Navy. Right, in the Navy, yeah. So so he 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 knows, he's seen, you know, con, not, I don't know if he saw combat. Do you know that or not? If he saw combat? He's talked about it a little bit in his investment outlooks and, and in interviews. And it seems like he um, was like in a boat near like a little like take the boat, the people to the shore. And he was sort of just babysitting the little boat uh, while other people were on, on land. Right. It sounds like he was near some combat, but not super in it. Okay. But he learns about risk, reward, pressing the edge, and not from 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 uh, playing, black, uh, playing blackjack, as well as military experience. He has that discipline. And he goes and he has the nerve to say, you know, I want to start and I want to shake up this. I want to be an innovator in this segment of the market. And just impress upon us, Mary, how huge is the bond market? Oh, it's enormous. I mean, it's trillions of dollars. I haven't looked it up lately, but it's it's just staggering the the size and the the dominance of it, the kind of influence of it. You know, this is how governments and companies fund themselves. This is how they fund operations, how they, you know, pay for a new factory or a new equipment. This is how companies, how how governments, you know, put out programs, do pro like pay for their own functioning and pay their workers. So I think that, you know, the the influence and importance of it sort of is hard to overstate. And it's outshone by its, I think, younger sibling, <laughs> smaller sibling, the stock market. You know, it's more the stock market's more accessible for people like you and me to just dip in and out of and, and you know, trade on our little right. accessible TD Ameritrade, whatever accounts. Um, whereas the bond market is much more institutional. It's much, much larger sums of money flying around at one at one given time. OK, so he starts at somewhere around, I don't know, 1970s or so, right? 71, 72. 71 is, yeah. 71, OK. Date. So he starts this little thing, and all of a sudden it just grows. What, what's the magic of it? Why is money attracted to him? Why, why is he making money where nobody was making money before? Oh, such a good question. There are a bunch of different answers. Um, one is they were very good at marketing. Bill Gross himself is actually quite good at marketing. He doesn't love the kind of 
person to person engagement in client meetings, but he'll do it and he's good at it. And they also had a dedicated client services person, which was a bit radical at the time. And that person, you know, this guy, Jim Muzzy, who's like so warm and fuzzy, just very, just a nice, warm person. Um, he really understood the market too. So they had this very informed person in client services as well, where I think it was kind of less seen at the time as a value add to have someone who knows what they're, what they're talking about in client right. services. So that was, that's kind of a structural part of it that was helpful. There's also, you know, I think Bill brought that kind of beat the machine, beat the system mentality to the market. And that certainly helped, but he, I think one of the main innovations that he brought was just being really aggressive when and, and early to a new market. So whenever there was a new market or a new product, you know, whether it's emerging markets or, you know, inflation protected securities or, uh, you know, mortgages in general, the the idea at PIMCO was if there's a new thing, we jump on it. So he very much did this and being early to financial futures and to mortgages provided a lot of extra outperformance over decades for them. Right. And he also he also does it at a, at really a great time because you have uh, inflation starting to kick up. The United States goes right. off the gold standard. Uh, right. So he, you know, look, you know, Bill Gross would have been Bill Gross without this, but boy, what a tailwind he had. Absolutely true. And this comes up a lot. You know, this was sort of the most fortuitous period to be in the exact seat that he was in for decades. You know, this is a, this is a long stretch of time. It's, it's, in a which long, it's a long wave. You know, he writes this way for 30, wave. 40 years. Exactly. And he definitely knew that and talked about it. And I think this is, you know, one of the knocks on him is that like, oh, he had so much uh, the structure around him, the situation, the environment was so conducive to his success that, you know, did he was he really such a genius, which I think is a little a little unfair, a little bit, um, you know, throwing rocks at your heroes. I find that's always said by people who missed out. Right. They could. Yeah. In 1971, there were a lot of smart people that could have done it, but didn't. Right. He did it. So he exactly. gets the credit. That's all. Exactly right. I completely agree with that. But it is, you know, it was a an undeniably fantastic period to be a financial investor. And, you know, in his seat, in Warren Buffett's seat, in all of these various, you know, influential roles around the market, it it was great. Yeah, well, Munger and Buffett say if they started, you know, 30, 40 years later, 20 years later, they could not right. have had the structural advantages that they had. They were dealing, exactly. you know, Buffett was going around buying shares from farmers who had no idea what the value of their securities right. were. You just can't do right. that anymore. You know, the, the information exactly. arbitrage is, is there. You know, what happens is known immediately. And they were taking advantage of what people knew and what people did in the real information. And sometimes Completely. they were lagged by weeks. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think someone at a conference asked Howard Marks what his best advice would be for uh, investors. And he was like, start your career in the late 60s yeah. <laughs> or something like that. It's just like, OK, I'll be sure to do that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I find just on just on the side, since you deal so much with personal finance, and you probably hear this uh, from so many people, is that they take their biggest advantage, most investors, which is time. They have the time. The institutions don't have the time because they have mm -hmm. to report on a monthly or quarterly basis to beat the bogey, to beat a benchmark, whatever it might be. So they have to make their investment. But an individual investor, as soon as you start trading, you play in their in their marketplace. When you don't have exactly. to trade, when you just buy and hold and ride these things out, your advantage is humongous. But so many people just trade it away. I think that's exactly right. And, <clears throat> you know, it's hard when the market's 
plummeting to to kind of keep your head about you and not do anything but it is and and you know the the best and i think worst investors would tell you that that's the time to be pouring more money into the market when things are just absolutely falling apart because that's you know you don't really want to try to time the bottom but i always laugh about the idea of like averaging your dollar cost down <laughs> if you already have a position you bought it at 100 and you buy more at 60 well now your average price is less congratulations right. like you did it and and that's a funny thing that investors will say to you if you're trying to write about their poor performance for example but it is it is a real thing and it is one of those kind of you know you talked about that kind of discipline from military experience and from uh you know the counting cards in vegas and i think that's super true the ability to just kind of regulate yourself and regulate your own emotions and your own engagement with the market is really difficult and really important mm -hmm. it's all about temperament if you don't have the right temperament you shouldn't be playing this you shouldn't be investing so true. state so of money true. market you know that's it okay so not only, not only is it, it does uh, Bill Gross have and PIMCO have the structural advantage and have the customer in person and have a great tailwind, he starts producing returns that are just, I don't know what's a good word for it, magnificent compared mm -hmm. to the benchmark because you don't beat the yeah. benchmark by so much. You want to talk about that? Yeah, this goes back to the idea, you know, he there was a lot of, you know, credit selection and just literally looking at companies and saying whether this company was good and and he wanted to invest in it or not. But what is more kind of intellectually delightful for me is thinking about the structural trades that he did, one being that, you know, getting or getting there early to certain markets, uh, international and mortgages being, I think, the kind of most salient in that early track record. Um, I'm talking like, you know, 70s and 80s in here. And I think there's also it, it, it's one of the tenets of what he called structural alpha, um, which was what he how he kind of characterized. It's not quite passive investing. It's not quite factor investing, but it's trades that are replicable, that are, you know, identifying trends and themes in the market that are robust and persistent and that you can take advantage of all the time. Give, so give, me, give, give me an example. Give me an example. Mary. Yeah. So one selling volatility, for example. So if you think that there's no disaster imminent, that you know, there's not like a war that could go, you know, could explode in everyone's face or there's not some, you know, massive inflation spike. Like you have have to have some degree of certainty in the near term. But if you have that degree of light certainty, you know, of course, you can never quite predict when something terrible is going to happen. You can just say, all right, I'm going to sell volatility. I'm going to basically sell insurance for lack of a better, you know, more precise descriptor, sell insurance that that says, OK, markets are going to trade within this range. And if it trades outside, I will have to hand over the money I was given for this, the premium. But I feel pretty good about it. And Bill was very good at predicting those ranges. And I think more often than not, that was a really winning trade for him and for PIMCO, was just saying everyone else wants to buy this insurance because they want to sleep at night. I don't mind. I will sell it to you happily. I can sleep just fine. Right. He, he had no problem being on the other side of a trade to sacrifice his sleep so someone else could sleep better because <laughs> exactly. they, they, exactly. they rewarded him. Pretty well exactly. for it. And he was right. That's right. He was right a lot and of the right. time. And therefore mm -hmm. he gets it. Okay. So uh, PIMCO goes on and starts managing millions first, then tens of millions, then billions, billions That's of dollars. Right. People are just beating a path to where he becomes basically bigger than the index. He becomes mm -hmm. the index. He The U.S. Mm -hmm. was it the Treasury uh, speaks to him. Uh, I think it was in 07, right. 08 about a, a bond issue. Was, am I right on that? or? 
Yeah, they called him um, more or less for for macro advice for just like what even is going on and how would you play this and what do you think we should be doing? But, you know, the headline of the Times article was Treasury's got Bill Gross on speed dial Yeah, right. Um, right. because it was it was just such a tumultuous period and and so centered around the market in which PIMCO was so influential and so knowledgeable that it really only made sense for them to be calling Bill and asking him, you know, in some sense, they were kind of locked in this weird relationship where Bill Gross and PIMCO were enormous buyers of government paper, but also of Fannie Freddie mortgages, which were like quasi sort of kind of government backed. And that promise really wasn't clear. And so that relationship, I mean, I think every society has to make its its compromises with, um, you know, private credit markets and, and every, you know, how much the government will do and how much the credit markets, the private markets will do. And in this case, you know, it's just a weird intersection. And I think we didn't really in my estimation, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure people who thought very carefully about it at the time will beg to differ, but it just seems like we were like, yeah, yeah, that's fine that all of this is happening and that Bill Gross has such influence and PIMCO has such influence in this exact moment in history. Um, yeah, it's a weird time. But, it, it, you know, look, it, 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 it um, that, we'll talk about that later. Let's talk okay. more about the guy. So, okay. so one of the things that I found in your book just fascinating that when Bill was interviewing people to work for him, he would ask, do you want to be famous, rich, or powerful? And what, what did, when you first heard that, how did you find out about that, by the way? He told me that. We were sitting over a pastry that he did not eat, um, and he told me that, that that was his favorite interview question because it made people uncomfortable. It made them kind of squirm. They knew that there would be a right answer, but they weren't sure what it was. And any potential answer would reveal a vulnerability. And so he liked that that made them uncomfortable and got a good answer out of them. But I think it made, it, it tells so much about the type of person he is because his answer to that mm-hmm. was fame. Fame, always, yeah. And how do you see that as part of the downfall? Well, I think it's an interesting, you know, the whole the whole framing of the question presupposes that those are the only things, of course, and that those are the, the values that any person can have or should have, which is itself an assertion. And then it, you know, leans into the one that really wouldn't lead you into money management, right? If you want fame, become, it's just not. Yeah, become an actor, right? you know? Right. <laughs> Go on TikTok. Right. Um, Go on TikTok. You know. <laughs> Back in the day, there was no TikTok. Oh, was there not? Okay. <laughs> there was but, not, yeah. But there is there is this this kind of tension there where he's in this unusual role for, for the aims that he had. He did a really good job with that. You know, he became the face of the bond market. He became this influential figure. Um, and and it's sort of upside down to think that the bond market was just like the delivery mechanism for his, you know, fame goal. Like that's what got him there. But um, it does end up sort of, you know, fame is one of those things that you can't control the next headline. You can't generate the next headline exactly to your liking. And in a sense, for someone like Bill, it's just never going to be enough. There's never going to come a moment where he's like, all right, I have achieved it. I am famous. And like fame, you know, the next person becomes famous and everyone forgets about you five seconds later. So there's an insatiability built into this, into these priorities. And I don't know how much that's better in money or power. Like, I don't know if there's such a thing as enough money or enough power. But in this one, I do think that um, it wasn't exactly fame that he wanted so much as adoration. I think he wanted to be revered and respected and adored. And then when things were more critical, it was very hard for him to kind of incorporate that and accept that. You know, there's some people who are like, bad news is good news. Like, my name's in the headlines. I don't care. And I don't think he's that kind of person. 
He just thought it was a one-way street up, right? It wasn't going anywhere else right. there. And when it doesn't yeah. work, you know, fame, you know, I don't care what the news says, long, you know, good, bad news, bad news, as long as, you know, I mean, it's, it's not really so because, yeah. you know, there is bad PR. <laughs> you know, there is, yeah. there is, there is bad stuff that could be said about you. And uh, it kind of is, the, this is all I'm learning from the book. You met the man, you, you spent hour, hours, days, months. You, I don't know, how long mm-hmm. does this book take you to write? Seven years. Okay, you spent seven years sleeping with thinking this idea, <laughs> thinking about this. You just, I, I know how it is to write a book, and it, I'll never do another one. It just rips your yeah, guts out. Exactly. If you do it right, if you do it right. You know, if you're not doing it right, you can get one out in, in a heartbeat. But if you do it right, you really, you know, every footnote is researched. Every conversation is, is mined. So, so here you have a guy where, you know, as you're writing this, you know, I'm reading the early chapters and and knowing that his his drive was for fame you kind of it's it's kind of foreshadowing when mm-hmm. that fame is not there and I'm not trying to psychoanalyze or anything but when the fame is not there he doubles down he tries to you know grab it and yeah. doesn't I don't know the business decisions the people decisions the life decisions they're just not they're just not good ones They're not, they're not good ones. I think that's well put. It is a weird thing because I think, you know, he had this persona that was so effective for so long and somehow in 2014 that changed. And I think that either he like missed a trick and wasn't able to see that that had changed and how to like reintegrate the new elements or how to, you know, I don't, he wasn't able to pivot in a, in a way that would work, but I think he also kind of, it just made him spiral like the ways that he that he dealt with that only made things worse yeah, you know he yeah. would kind of bring all this stuff up at meetings when everyone's trying to do you know job things like move the company forward and get the work done and he's like well what do you think about you know did we handle the muhammad alayan resignation the way that we should have like let's do a post-mortem on this thing that he's clearly not over yet and everyone else is like we gotta we gotta move on man like this is not productive and you know in some sense doing that kind of postmortem is can be productive and in another sense you it just it felt like it was more personal than professional at a certain point and i think that that was very frustrating for the rest of the people trying to run the company but like it's confusing for someone who had managed to keep himself together for so long you know this same personality had been working for 40 years and all of a sudden it's a problem and then and then it just like it's like the dams broke you know you know, I remember when this was happening, watching this, you know, reading about it in the journal. And mm-hmm. here's a guy who crafted his whole image for 30, 40 years or so. And I kept I kept really contrasting it to Warren Buffett. It's like if mm-hmm. Warren Buffett freaked out publicly, he would right. be, or 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 uh, I don't know, did some 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 outlandish thing which is so unbuffett like, you right. would say, wait a second, who's the real guy here? Was that just crafted? For the for for the for the media and for me to be sucked for in for me exactly yeah and and you felt I wouldn't say betrayed because I, I you know I never invested with Pimco or maybe I might have I'm not really sure maybe one of the funds <laughs> but uh, you know Bill Gross was the guy so here you have a, an icon a legend in the bond market this guy was as big as Warren Buffett was in bonds there's no question about that in terms of his his status he was he was the guy. And to see him start to unravel, and really, I don't know—is that a good word? Did you just, would you say I that? I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And and you're exactly right. I do think that a huge part of the problem was this difference between how he was perceived in that image that he crafted, and then the kind of everyday experience of him, which 
I don't think he was super aware of that experience of him. And part of that speaks to, I think when you're in power, especially for so long, and you become this legend, like maybe, and and you work so hard for the fame, like you just, you see yourself as this like still hardworking person, just getting the job done, like trying to get the best, you know, execution and the best trade ideas. Whereas everyone else is like, oh my God, it's the Bond King. Oh, he didn't look me in the eye. Like your, your role changes and you have to notice that at a certain point. And I don't think Bill did. So people around him are like, this guy's kind of mean, like this guy's really brash and he, you know, and, and the culture changed too in the world, you know, outside of PIMCO. So PIMCO didn't change, but the kind of context of PIMCO did where we aren't really as keen on low key abusive workplaces anymore. And, um, the culture is that intense kind of bearing down on people to get the best ideas. So Bill was not this like adorable folksy guy that we all had been watching on television. You know, he is to some extent, but on the other side, he's intense and harsh and will kind of berate you in a meeting if he's trying to get to, you know, he didn't notice that. And then once it all spilled forth, I do think there's this perception thing where we as news consumers and as people who, you know, don't know Bill that well, but we see him on TV. I think everyone was like, whoa, is this, is that, like there's an element of he lied to me, right? Of he was putting you, you, forward you, you this notice, thing. You, you feel betrayed. You, you, you said it right. You feel betrayed. You feel like, you know, you're vulnerable. You know, it's so weird to say, but you, there's a vulnerability because you start to link up with that guy. I know I have the same yeah. relationship with Buffett and Munger. You know, if you Buffett and Munger came out with something radical tomorrow, it would crush me. It really would. Oh, no. You know, it, would, it definitely would. <laughs> totally. So, yeah, no, I know. So if he, you know, if I'm just... If Munger abused his wife, you know, just can't right. even. You would feel it. personally betrayed. What are you crazy? This is a guy, you know. Right. You won't feel that, and especially with Gross, uh, for those, uh, maybe I'll put a link down below in the uh, description. You read his outlooks every quarter. They're just, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. They're just such a. They, he starts with songs sometimes. He just brilliant, yeah. brilliant the way he pulls so many different, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, elementary wisdoms all together. And he just makes it so easy to understand and and folksy. And here you have mm-hmm. a guy like, wait a second, that's not the same guy I'm reading about. Exactly. That's not the guy I knew. And you feel that like the rug pulled out from under you. And I think that foments that that creates resentment and anger, you know, towards this guy that, that was this legend. But it also uh, it just feeds more of it, right? People will start to like look for those stories and then it's just like more oh, wow. and more comes out. And then all yep. your behaviors get translated through that mechanism. Like if everyone's seeing you as bad, then yep. suddenly you're bad all the time. And and I just think that every time he tried to regain control of the narrative, yeah, some of his decisions were super misguided and like only helped to fuel the 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 fire. But at the same time, even if he had executed perfectly, like I'm thinking of the Morningstar speech that he did in 2014, um, where the content of the speech was so good. It was all about structural alpha, the keys to the kingdom. This is what I did to help him co-op perform over decades. So good. But there was a little intro that was just basically unhinged and that really kind of freaked people out, given the context of this, you know, media uh, storm around him that just added to the, the to the fire. And people were like, I got to pull my money out from Pimco because this guy's not making sense. So if he had turned the dial down on that and up on the structural alpha stuff, like, would he have been fine? Could he have recovered from this? Yeah, maybe. Okay, so we talked about how one man made it, made a market, built it, built an empire. I think 
they were managing, I don't know, two, three hundred billion dollars or I don't even know. I don't, is that a right number? Yeah, the flagship fund was was about three hundred billion dollars at its peak um, in the, the mutual fund. Yeah, 300 billion it's wild. So, right. Yeah, just yeah. amazing. And the last part is and lost it all. So just walk us through that. How, how do you have. And, and by the way, it's not a matter of money that he lost because he's still an extremely wealthy guy. Right. Right. When right, you write lost exactly. it all, what are you talking about? Um, first of all, I so appreciate this question because a lot of people have been like, he didn't lose it all. He still has money. And I'm like, and that's all there is. Like, You know, thinking about what Bill values, he valued his position in the markets. He valued the, the measuring stick of his track record. He valued being the bond king, I think. And he valued, you know, the fame, the, the brand, the image, all that stuff that we're talking about. Those were substantially, you know, his goals. And he, I think it's pretty clear, no longer has those. And there are also, there's other other collateral, um, you know, his his marriage fell apart with his second wife and um, his relationship with the son from that marriage. Um, it's it's super sad and it really bums me out to think about, but, you know, he's started over, he started, he's building himself a new, you know, he got remarried um, and says that he's, you know, very happy golfing in Palm Springs. So, um, you know, he's, he's, always reinventing and always um, looking for new ways to come to the table fresh. But I think, yeah, the the world that he built over 40 years, you know, this life that he built, including his home, his marriage, his, you know, his commute into work, it was a pretty devastating couple of years, 2014 through, I guess, 17-ish. Um, maybe, no, 19 is when he retired from Janice and finally threw in the towel and just said, I'm, this isn't going to work anymore and yeah. gave up. You touched, by the way, which I didn't bring up, of uh, his proximity to where he put, where Pimco was, mm-hmm. to his house. Why don't you share that with us? Yeah, so he had this, I mean, it was a, he, he lived in this um, gated community in Laguna, very beautiful. Um, I never went inside the gate, but, you know, you <laughs> you can imagine. Um, and and he had this kind of, you know, you drive along the, the highway for a little bit, you take a right, and he's at his office. And when Pimco was considering other locations for its office when they needed to, to move into a bigger space, you know, they talked about other places and, and moving the entire company maybe to a different state, maybe to a different campus. You know, they considered places in Irvine. And in the end, it was just like, well, then we'd have to do something new. Then, you know, Bill Gross wouldn't be able to just drive his morning commute. You know, you get into a rhythm. You don't notice that you're driving the commute. You're thinking about other things and having to take a, a, you know, having to like wake your mind up to the directions that you're, you know, and take a new right to Irvine instead of this one and navigating all this new stuff. I think he was just uninterested in that. And they ended up moving from one building to about, I don't know, 300 feet away to, uh, to their current building. So it was a, you know, his was the, the the vote that really counted here. And I think he was just uninterested in in having to navigate a new morning commute, which is, of um, course, a bit symbolic, right? Yeah, it's just unbelievable, right? So uh, this was uh, 2019. He, I think in 2019, you said he retires. And mm-hmm. since then, what has he been doing? Have you been keeping up well, with him? Well, after a bit, you know, here and there. And it's one of those things where I, I sat with him for so long for so many years and uh, he was so, so generous with his time. There comes a point where you're like, you know, 
we're journalists and subject. We're not pals, right? This isn't like a, I'm not going to like get coffee with him just to catch up, um, which I think is good and appropriate, right? Like you, you, that's a, it's a pretty healthy um, separation and, and kind of boundary, but um, we email periodically and, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that he's doing well. He actually wrote his own memoir, his own um, kind of narrative of his life and his accomplishments and published it uh, two weeks before my book came out. I think, I think what happened there is, my fact checker sent him a list of, you know, facts to check. And I think he kind of took the measure of those and was like, that's not what I wanted. This isn't mm. what I want. And chose to kind of make his own stack of facts, which is absolutely his right. And I'm glad that he did that. Um, but yeah, I think he's been he's been engaging on some of the meme stock stuff, which has been fun. He's continued to publish his investment outlooks. Um, I think it's less than monthly now. It's more kind of when he feels like it. But those are still, you know, what he what he thinks will happen and what inflation's doing and where the best investments are and so on and so forth. So Great. he's keeping at it in many ways. Well, so, Mary, let me ask you the last question. Why should someone read your book? Because they're looking at this saying, this is a book about a, a tragic figure. Is this a book about investing? Is this a, what's this book going to teach me? Because I'll tell you from before I give you a big wind up on this one. Let me before you <laughs> before I ask your actual question. I always look at a book and I say, look, I'm going to invest three, four hours, sometimes more, five hours of my time. What am I going to be able to gain out of it? If it's, that's why, mm -hmm. I, you know, unfortunately, really, unfortunately, I don't read fiction that much. I don't read fiction, period. Uh, so I, and that's a sad thing. But um, I always look at a book and say, okay, what am I going to gain out of this? So if mm -hmm. I asked you that book prior to reading it, I'm going to tell you what I thought, uh, what I gained out of it. But what, what when you wrote this, and you said seven years. It's I know, man. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work, and it's, it's, it's it becomes compulsion. It's a compulsion. You check Absolutely. everything. The person on the other end who's reading it. What messages you want to get through? Mm. I wanted people. I did sincerely want people to learn about the bond market, which I know sounds a bit, bleh. Um, but I do think this narrative is so such a roller coaster that you'll have fun and you'll get off at the end of the roller coaster being like, oh, now I know what she was talking about at the beginning when I was a little bit like, what's she, I don't know. So that's, that's a real goal is that, is that people come away from it better able to answer questions and, and feel engaged in the world around them in that way. Um, so there's like a real tangible. Okay. But, you, but, but let's, let's be real, Mary. You could have wrote okay. that, you could have wrote that book about anyone, right? Or it didn't have to be a person. You could write true, a book about true, a bear, bear market. True. Um, well, the, the, and the thing that I, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned the kind of the reflective nature of Bill, you know, and, and some of the people around him too, I think it does engender sort of a similar, you know, when people know that someone else is talking about themselves in this reflective way, I think other people join in a bit. Um, and it's like this managerial King Lear, right? It's like this corporate, you know, showdown that becomes so petty. And so, I mean, one of the things that I found somewhat cathartic is the pettiness in it, where it's just reassuring to know that at every income level and at every measure of success, like you're, it's just, it doesn't get, humans are humans. Like we're just always going to be like, I can't believe that person disrespected me in this incredibly small way and I'm not going to let it go. So that was, um, you know, this, this reads, I think, reads like fiction, especially in the back half when it becomes more about that falling apart in 2014. And the thing to take away from that is I've been, it's made me think a lot about self-awareness and the the gap between being reflective and being self-aware. And I think Bill was really reflective and certainly no person can be fully self-aware. You know, there's, of course, that's just not possible. That's why we have spouses. Exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> They're very helpful. That's so true. <laughs> but I do think that's like, for me, that's been a big takeaway of thinking about how you're received in public and how, you know, what, what everybody's bringing to the table that you might not know about or what your actions are saying when you don't mean it. And it's been gratifying in recent weeks to talk to or months to talk to people, you know, who were in the room with Bill or in the, you know, were aware of the, of what was going down. And they're like, oh, it didn't occur to me to think of it that way. I didn't know that Bill was thinking this. I didn't know that so-and-so thought that. And being able to kind of unfurl all of the complexity of human emotion and, and the kind of little petty disputes that we get ourselves locked into, that was um, cathartic and also sort of a cautionary tale. <laughs> yeah, no, good, good stuff. You know, when I read this, I'll give you just my take on this. Please. Is... Um, when I read this, I knew something of the problem, you know, what, what, how, the end, how it was going to end, because it was in the papers yeah. and it was uh, very public. But I never saw it from an insider's view, which you presented. So it's really great stuff. You did outstanding, really outstanding. Thank you. I appreciate um, that so much. I learned from this, don't take yourself too seriously and be humble. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, pride, you know, pride cometh before the fall. It's just a matter of he, you know, it, it, when you try to live for fame and try to be famous, it, regardless, I know money you can never have enough or power you can never have enough. There's a limit. There's a limit. But here with fame, it's it's unsatiable. What, what mm -hmm. you know, it's like the, the young, beautiful, 20-year-old actresses, you know, in, in, in Hollywood. Just another five, six more years, there's going to be a new crop coming up. You will never, ever, ever be famous right. for it. There will always be some new, beautiful person coming up right behind you. So fame is fleeting. You know, it's like, um, it, it's just, a, you know, a patent, you know, I forget that. You just mentioned that when the, when the, when the, um, when the warring, when the uh, general would come, the hero of the war would come, and he would be in his chariot, march through the streets of, uh, of Rome, there would always be a slave next to him, as if it, this is all fleeting. You know, it just, it will pass, yeah. it will pass. And you look at this, this guy had everything, no, everything, but it still mm -hmm. wasn't enough. And, and, uh, he cared more about his outer scorecard than his inner scorecard. Mm, that's well put. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a discipline, right? Teaching yourself about that inner scorecard. You're just not that important. You're just not that yeah. important. And in the big scheme of things, it's it's how, how you know, what you do for the world, not what the world does for you. Because that's what endures. Yeah. And if you try to do, you know, make it the other way around, eventually, like 2014 Morningstar, the mask will come off. Because you, you have to be, mm -hmm. you know, it's... I don't know. That's just my take. I've just found throughout life that you can't be one way in public, one way in private. It just does not work out because eventually there will be that moment in time. And that's why I'm so um, um, really um, ama not amazed. I shouldn't say amazed. That's why I'm so I revere Buffett and Munger so much is because they've been consistent both in and out. And even mm -hmm. when I read uh, Alice Schroeder's book, who I interviewed many years ago, uh, Snowflake, there were people who wanted to say bad things about Buffett, but they're waiting till he died because they didn't want any retribution. But even the negative parts of it were still not so, you know, were, I understand so it's bad. business. Yeah. yeah. It, it was still, it was still something where I said, you know, it's not so crazy, but, yeah. uh, you know, it's my, it's like a matter of characterization where versus like something grievously unforgivable, like objectively unforgivable. I, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't say it better. Yeah. Yeah. That really is it. It was, it was, it was a, it was a speed bump. It really wasn't a new highway, you know? That's the way yeah. I see it. But but I think, you know, I, I just, even people who aren't into finance, uh, who aren't into bonds or anything, I just, would you mention it's really cathartic to see, the, you know, everyone has, everyone's human, you're right. 
And uh, you're right, obvious. <laughs> For those who aren't listening to this. Thank you. Arguing, that was the yeah, scientific discovery yeah, that I made. <laughs> great. Stating the obvious. So if, for those people who look at this, yeah, they're just like everyone else. And I guess we like to watch people in power or fame fall for the same things that we would. That, that's kind of human nature, unfortunately. But I think yeah. what's great about this book is you, you are not so judgmental. You're really balanced. You don't bang them over the head with a, with a hammer. Would you say that that's more or less you, you try to fight that or? Oh yeah. I try to fight that. I mean, I find it uninteresting if people are painted as caricatures, you know, it's like, okay, I don't watch cartoons. So like, why would I be reading this? It, it, the thing that I think is interesting is when the people are nuanced and, and, you know, have motivation and, and if I'm judgmental, I can't, not only can I not express all that nuance and, you know, difficulty that these people may be struggling with, I can't express it, but I won't get it. You know, no one will tell me all that stuff. If I'm judgmental, I can't, I have to, you know, take whatever, you know, assumptions and presuppositions I have about the world and about the people, I have to set all that aside in order to be a good reporter and go into basically their world, you know, absorb what they think is important, absorb, you know, whatever they really need to talk about, because there's always some like, you know, great, great big thing that needs to get out. Um, and and if you can suspend your own kind of self in a way to meet them where they are, that's when you learn more about them and are able to actually communicate that information. Yeah. And yeah, like I have judgments, but yeah, I'm so I'm gratified to hear that they're not in the book because that is it well, is really well, hard. I, I, I didn't I didn't I didn't see them. I, I didn't I didn't Thank feel you. like they're always going to be because you wrote it. Oh, but sure. I, I, yeah, I thought it was pretty balanced. Yeah. I thought it was I thought it was very balanced because there were times where you could have kicked them in the head, but you didnn't. And they, you Thank could have you. added your thing. So I think that's really, shows a lot of restraint and, you know, just getting the story right. So, folks, the name of the book is The Bond King, How One Man Made a Market, Built an Empire, and Lost It All by Mary Childs. Mary, how's the book selling, by the way? It's out since what, March, April? Yes, out since March. It's doing amazingly well. I'm so, so happy. Did you it's think actually, it was going to do this are... well? Did you think it was going to, seriously, when you're writing a book about bonds no. and the bond king, yeah. like, really? <laughs> I know. No, I was uh, definitely nervous about it. You know, it is about bonds. And every minute of me working on it, I was like, God, this book's going to be too late. All this stuff happened in 2014. You know, who's going to care? But it's sold so well. And people are being so kind about it. We are in our second printing wow. already, which is amazing. And I'm just feeling really, really lucky. People have been really nice. Second printing in only what? Five months, four months. It was actually like the first week. We wow. already. It was yeah. It was really. Oh, so really your publisher didn't have much high hopes for that. If, if they put you in the second printing, right? Where they Arguable. Print, like, yes, <laughs> yes. They're like, this is a book about bonds. We'll, no, we'll, girl. We'll, we'll print three of these and see how it goes, and we'll give her one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> wow, that's not not what happened. Probably. Wow, continued success. That is absolutely outstanding. And folks could catch you on. On NPR's Planet Money. Um, you know, I'm I'm regrettably on Twitter, and um, I have a newsletter that I occasionally update. <laughs> and and on NPR, you give it, you do a show, a podcast. How often? Um, I probably will put out one or two a month. Um, sometimes three in a particularly busy month. Um, but yeah, very as varied as as you said, you know, carried interest loophole. We just did a show about the Inflation Reduction Act and to what extent it actually reduces inflation. Um, yeah, it, it's a kind of a wide range of economic concepts. Beautiful. Mary Child's continued success. Thanks so much. I really Thank enjoyed you so this. Much. So kind. This was really fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, 
We'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.